This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. The beautiful Dr. Jana is sitting across from me right now. Are you mesmerized? Oh my lord, your beauty. <laughs> How you doing, Jana? <laughs> I'm doing great. We are right here at episode 35 of Indeed. the Science of Sex, and a couple things we want to hit before we get going, but who is our special guest today? Our special guest is Dr. Christian Grove from the City University of New York, who's going to talk to us about coming out then and now, how things have changed in the coming out process for gay and lesbian folks, and then we're going to talk a little bit about HIV and PrEP and his new study, which is fascinating. Awesome. And you are a very busy professor. As be- always. Even though you're on your summer break, it's ne- there's <laughs> it's no stopping, Dr. Jana. So <laughs> you have something special going on this there week. There is stopping, Dr. Jana. It's called July and August. Oh, okay. Yeah, but we're still in June. Okay. Therefore, I'm still doing some stuff. All right. So you're not in your summer break mode yet. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. All right, cool. So before you get <laughs> in summer break mode, what do you have this week? On Monday, 6-18, June 18th, I'm going to be on a panel of non-monogamous women sharing their experiences and truthful perspectives about what it's like to be in a poly open relationship of some sort. Wait, hold on a second. You're, you're non-monogamous? <laughs> I, this is breaking news to well, me. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm there to provide the scientific oh, okay. kind of perspective. You're the expert? I'm the expert. I got you. As well as someone who might have some experience with this. You might have dabbled in nominology. Once or twice before. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> but uh, this is happening at the Wing in Dumbo, and it's an all-female co-working space and the bad news is that you have to be either a member of the wing or be brought in as a guest okay. of one of the members gotcha. you also have to be a woman or a female identifying person but so if you happen to be it sounds like a secret society it's a secret society like the skulls or something no, like that it's no. just a co-working space okay. that is targeted to women only so yeah you have to be either a member or a guest but if you are then please come and see me and other women talk about non-monogamy and open relationships on 618 at the wing. All right, let's get started. The science of sex goes deeper. Joe, when did you come out as straight? <laughs> I'm not sure. I didn't know if I had an age. Uh, I guess... You never came out? I never came out as straight, no. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. I mean, I guess it could be a thing, but it's not a thing for most straight people. But for most any non-straight people, mm-hmm. there's usually a point when they come out. Sure. I've yeah. seen that in the movies. You've seen that in the movies? You <laughs> yeah. know that happens? <laughs> that does happen, yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that and how that may have changed over the last 10 or more years. And we're going to talk about that with someone who's been studying this. And his name is Dr. Christian Grove. He's a professor in the Department of Community Health and Social Sciences here in New York City at CUNY at the City University of New York. His research centers on sexual health of sexual minority individuals, particularly gay and bisexual men, and has explored substance use, sexual compulsivity, venues where individuals go to meet sex partners, and also pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. His studies have been funded by both the NIH and the CDC, and he's an associate editor for the Journal of Sex Research on the editorial boards of AIDS and Behavior, Archives of Sexual Behavior, and the International Journal of Sexual Health. He has authored or co-authored over 100 publications, including a book called In the Company of Men, Inside the Lives of Male Prostitutes. So we have Dr. Christian Grove to talk to us about coming out then and now, and also to tell us a little bit about his new study on HIV prevention and PrEP. Dr. Christian Grove, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
So we're going to talk about coming out and how that's changed. And how did you end up studying this? Um, so the first article that we put out came out in 2006, but it was based on data from 2002, 2003. Um, so we were working on it prior to 2006. And, you know, the things that Game I think... Game science takes so long to publish. It does. It does. <laughs> it does. So two things, you know, sort of happened at once. Like it was, you know, we were just coming out of the 90s um, when uh, uh, TV was really revolutionized by like Ellen DeGeneres and mm, Will and Grace. Will and Grace. I think are the first two that come to mind as, you know, really changing the way that people think about gay people. And then the other thing was there just hadn't been a lot published as of late on the coming out process. Most of what we knew about coming out was from the 80s, you know, right. or even the mm -hmm. 70s. So we had an opportunity to collect data on these milestones that people, that we, what we call milestones for coming out. And so we did. And then, you know, we put out the findings from it. To this day, it's the most cited article I've ever written. So really? Yeah. The 2006 paper? Yep. Huh. I got an email, an automatic email from Google um, at some point saying that it, uh, they created a metric for papers that made a lasting impact mm -hmm. in their respective fields based on um, how much they've been cited. And this was one of the top 10 articles That's awesome. in wow. sexuality. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I mean, it's great because it has a large sample. It's not a, like a nationally representative sample or anything, but it's a large sample and you have some women and men and then you have different cohorts and different ages and different races and you kind of looked at all of those things, right? Mm -hmm, Which mm -hmm. It was great really... timing for you, though, if you think about it, because 2006 yeah. was sort of like time people felt a little more comfortable coming out. Because I remember even <laughs> early 2000s was when people were getting pushed out. If you remember the Neil Patrick Harris stories and the, and the Lance Basses of the world. I mean, that was only like late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that turn happened and you caught the wave and yeah I, I, you know i just got lucky in, yeah. in, in that regard we had data and i was interested in it and um you know the research questions that i was really interested in were um you know are the milestones being passed um, among younger people at younger ages. You know, right. you sort of have this sort of stereotype that, you know, we had of someone growing up, marrying a woman, um, <laughs> having kids, and then the wife dies, and then he comes out. Right. 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 Um, well, he has the middle age crisis at 40, yeah. and that's yeah. when it comes yeah. out. Yeah. And, and, you know, that also perpetuated the narrative that people turned gay because they had lived a straight mm. life for so many years. Right. So I wanted to use this as an opportunity to correct that narrative as well, and also just provide some solid data on, you know, when people are passing various milestones, such as realizing, you know, um, admitting to themselves that they are gay. And then what happens, you know, like, or people thinking that, you know, if you have gay sex once, then you're going to turn gay, you know, whereas... Uh, it's got to be good, though, right? For you. It's, it's, yeah. It's, once yeah. you go, yeah, you can never go back. Um, but, you know, sort of counteracting that narrative as well to realize that people actually were gay before they had sex for the first time is typically right. what happens. Yeah. So before we actually delve into some of these milestones, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about coming out? Because I think most of the time when we mention coming out or when people think about coming out, they're just thinking about you telling someone to your, you know, your friend or your family that you're gay. Um, but that's not all that encompasses. No, you have to whole... go to Times Square, right? And then scream <laughs> it in the middle of the street. Is that, right. is that the official hold, way to do it? Hold big, big, or like Ellen, sign. you're at an airport yeah. and you lean over a microphone <laughs> and say, I'm gay. <laughs> So uh, you know, there's a couple of models that um, explain the coming out process. So, you know, um, LGB people are assumed to be straight, you know, as they're growing up. And so um, they're uh, subtly and overtly pressured into things as kids around like, oh, when you grow up and get married or this, you know, um, do you have a boyfriend yet? Do you have a girlfriend yet? And it's, you know, uh, uh, always the opposite, you know, um, gender, gender of the child. And so then the um, child begins to realize to themselves that, wait, I don't, you know, I feel different 
different, you know, inside, and I don't know what this is. Um, so then it's sort of grappling with that internal narrative around, I feel different from everyone else, and I don't know what to call this, to then, you know, accepting that I am different, you know, from someone else, to then admitting it to someone yeah. else that, you know, hey, I am different, or I am, you know, put this label on myself that I identify with this now. And somewhere in there, maybe sex fits in, you know, <laughs> as well. And for some people, you know, um, sex happens earlier, for some people, the sex happens later. And, you know, what's interesting with kids today, um, mm -hmm. where, you know, we're seeing that uh, it's much more socially acceptable for um, someone to be out in middle school, yeah. out in mm -hmm. high school, is that we're seeing, you know, it's almost cool. Right? Yeah, I, well, I finally have a gay friend. Yeah. Um, um, someone to talk about, you yeah. know, RuPaul's Drag Race and Lady Gaga with. You know, that people are coming out now before they're having sex, you know, mm -hmm. which is kind of like what heterosexuals do is like they understand mm -hmm. that they're heterosexual before they have sex. Had they sex don't have sex to, to then understand if they are heterosexual. So we're seeing that, you know, among young LGB people today, that they're much more developmentally on par with their heterosexual counterparts. It's funny how much that's changed within like 20 years because I'm. I'm a few years older than Dr. Jana, and all through high school, never met a gay person. I did not meet a, someone who's gay until I was in college, because at that point, this was like mid '90s. So mm. it's, it was, and it was one of those super awkward experiences where I used the term "that's so gay," mm. and the person came up to me and goes, "What do you mean by that?" And then so I'm like, I'm like a punk 20 year old kid. I'm like, I don't know, it's gay, it's cheesy. They're like, no, that's not what gay means. I'm gay. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> sorry about that. So that was your first gay person experience ever meeting. and it was super awkward and i felt like such a dick and to this day 20 years later i still do not use the phrase oh that's so gay because it's just oh, one of those things I've, I've you know you learn you evolve and and that's you know how life works but it's just so funny how nowadays you're saying that there's grade school kids and high school kids coming out but go back mm -hmm. just one generation and none of that really existed yeah and the reason why is because it's you know and it still is dangerous for mm -hmm. many kids today it depends on the household that they're in yeah. and whether the family's going to be supportive of it because when you're still dependent on you know someone else for a roof over your head yeah. or clothing or food like that's you know that's a tremendous risk sure. which is why so many people waited until the college years when they had more independence mm. from the you know the home that they grew up in yeah. which is and you're correct 20 years ago that was generally the narrative of most lgb people they came wow. out after they you know graduated high school and um were independent from their the families that raised them well it was a safe place too because you actually were in college and there were clubs where you know gay people hang out and yet LGB communities where you feel like oh my god there's people just like me I can actually talk yeah. to someone like that that didn't exist in high schools yet no and it's still controversial do. though mm -hmm. yeah. is it? It, um, yeah I mean depending on what state you live in whether they're going to even permit a gay straight alliance sure. to be in a school we also don't teach anything gay in schools <laughs> to kids right. so True. like even sex ed you know is not really inclusive mm -hmm. of, of um, you know gay stuff at mm -hmm. all what also happens I think developmentally with um, adult um, LGB people is if they have had a delay in you know you know they when they were 15 16 years old they weren't dating someone you know of the same sex that didn't happen maybe until they were in their 20s so um, they've got like a five, six, seven year lag Delay, when they yeah. can finally start, you know, experimenting with what it's like to hold someone's hand in public, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, go through a horrible breakup, you know, mm -hmm. so, yeah. I want to emphasize what all those developmental milestones are that we're talking about here. And you mentioned some of them, but let's kind of name them all. Sure, in sure. In the coming out process. Yeah, and, you know, there's, there's different terms used like, um, you know, phases or stages. I don't like the term stages because if you picture like a rocket launching into outer mm -hmm. space, like the rocket can't separate for stage two until stage one has happened. <laughs> right. And sometimes things can happen out of order. Um, we like to use milestones as concrete events. So, um, you know, at what age did you realize
ways that you might be gay. Hmm. At what age did you so, accept that so you... So realizing that you might be gay is one. Yeah. Um, accepting. Uh, accepting that you might be gay, telling someone else for the first time, and then, of course, having sex. Uh, for the first time okay. and you know we can get into the nuances of when did you first kiss when did you first have oral sex when what did you exactly first have, is yeah, sex yeah and, um, uh, um, scientifically when you get into the weeds like that it just be you know um, it, it's, 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 it's difficult to handle all of that data yeah. so in general we'll just say like when did you have sex for the first time right and you mentioned stages versus just these milestones I remember in kind of the even about 10 years ago or so, we we're talking about these stage models. And there was this understanding that things went in stages. And then some of the data, you know, some of your data coming out and other people's made it clear that things don't necessarily go in this very single, unitary way for everybody. Yeah. What were some of those stages? And what what sure. was the thinking that we have now? And, you know, um, uh, you know, the early work dates back to the earliest or most recent, I don't know, so 1970s is when we really started had people theorizing, you know, what is the process like for someone to come out? Wow. And um, that's before we really had concrete data on it. And those models are exceptionally helpful in informing what we do today. So I would say that, the, you know, like um, when we look at milestones today, that really sits parallel to the models that have been developed about how the coming pro out process works. And I think what we know today that we didn't know in 1978 is that it, it can vary for individuals. And some of those early models don't really account for the variability that can happen where just sometimes mm. people you know people live life out of order um, <laughs> so. and as you were saying things have changed because the way people were coming out back then was so because of the pressures, the social pressures around how acceptable it was or how not acceptable it was. Correct. And we live in a different yeah. you know, world today than we did three decades ago. <laughs> yeah. Very different. Yeah. And so you, you published a new study basically last year, right, in 2017, yep. that also looking at some of these milestones and when men in this case know there are no, no women in that no, study, right? No. Let me let me let me jump back. Uh, okay. I'll talk oh, yeah, about, sure. talk, no, it's okay. I'll talk about both studies sort of in sync. So the study that we did a decade ago, we had men and women in it. And like one thing that we noted was that men were actually coming out about two years earlier than women mm -hmm. were. And that had been, you know, anecdotally, you know, people talked about it, that, that women come out a little bit later. I don't have the why. So younger people 10 years ago um, were, you know, sort of passing milestones at earlier ages than someone who was in their 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. um, so I see that as a cultural effect um, of what's happening. And so that was the study that we did, you know, in 2006. What were the, the take home points of that was people were coming out earlier earlier than they, so younger, younger people, people were coming out earlier than older people, which makes sense because we're creating a more accepting environment for them to come out. Men were coming out a little earlier than women. Mm -hmm. Were there racial differences? No, remarkably, there, there really weren't. So um, uh, people of color were coming out roughly around the same time as, um, as white people, except for one you know, notable difference is that people of color were less likely to be out to their parents. You say remarkably because you weren't expecting that, you were expecting them to maybe come out later? No, or... I guess I, I guess I say maybe that wasn't the right term. I just it makes me feel sad, um, you know, like uh, uh, because if someone's not coming out to their parents, you know, what's the reason why? And I can guess that the reason why is because they're afraid that their parents are not going to accept them. Hmm. So, you know, that but that was really the only difference that people of color are really passing, you know, develop uh, sexual de identity development milestones, you know, at the same rate as, as as white people. So there was no delay there or anything like that. Um, Did you have a theory for why the men were uh, coming out a couple years younger in that first study? Yeah, what would, what would the explanations, possible explanations be? Yeah. I think that one... Uh, and this might this is this might upset some viewers at home. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we also live in a society that tells men to be very sexual 
and tells women mm-hmm. to repress their sexuality. So when you have, the, and, and you know, and women are, men are supposed to initiate sex and women are supposed to refuse it. And I think that those cultural aspects are maybe what contribute to the uh, a repression no, of women's sense. sexuality mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. That was 10 years ago. And actually the data, as you said, it was from 2002, three, right? So even more than 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And now you have mm-hmm. fresh data. Yeah, so we repeated the study, you know, almost almost a decade later, because I was just really curious in the decade that had passed between, you know, 2006, 2017, or however you want to, you know, look at the numbers. When we did that study in 2006, the youngest people in that study were 18 years old. Mm. So a decade later, if we do a study of 18 year olds, those people were eight, you know, when we did that study. So we have a whole new cohort of people that are, you know, that we can now represent in a study because, you know, of the the adolescent period. So, you know, we redid the study. And a lot had happened in those 10 years in our culture. Exactly. Exactly. Gay marriage. Gay marriage we have uh, that we didn't have. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I know Dr. Johnny, you don't watch any popular culture. Th- but, but tell us, tell but, us, Joe, but, what has happened in no, the last ten years? But basically, and I'm sure Christian can agree with this. Like, if you look at a gay character from an '80s movie to a, a 2016 movie, it's a, it's it's not even like you're looking at an alien. Like it's oh, it's the over the top flamboyant gay. Now all of a sudden you see guys who are like, oh, that's a guy, and he just happened to be gay. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's that has changed a huge, especially like in comedies. They were just like they were cartoons. Like if you were a gay, you were a gay character in a film, you were a cartoon, you were a comic relief, and now you can actually be a serious character in a film. Yeah, and I mean, if you also just look at pop culture, mm-hmm. where you know um, uh, Lady Gaga had become a huge advocate for the LGBT mm-hmm. community. Um, RuPaul's Drag Race premiered, you know, um, ten years ago. Wow. Um, for instance, you know, like so. We've we've really huh. seen um, uh, just much greater social acceptance. So yeah. right. so, and I also I, I really wanted to prove that you know in the decade that's passed things you know <laughs> actually have changed. So we redid this. We, we you know we had another sample of a thousand. Um, this was gained by sexual men from across the United States, and um, and we asked them all you know at at what point did you you know sort of realize that you might be gay? You know, tell someone else, have sex for the first time. Uh, and was it, this all ages? Also eighteen plus? Or? Yeah, it was actually nineteen plus um, <laughs> okay. at this point. But uh, but yeah, it was it was you know we can say eighteen or is 18 there a reason. You don't want to go a little younger with this one? Um, it's because we asked the study of a cohort of people that we had enrolled the year prior, and okay. they had to be 18 to get into the cohort. Got so it. one year later, the youngest participant was 19. <laughs> yeah. um, if you want yeah. to get into the weeds <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah, no. I'm just curious, because like, especially in this day and age, like you mentioned, you know, why not start with 15 or 16-year-old kids? But yeah, it makes sense. And, and we'll talk about that, because I'm mm-hmm. actually doing a study right now that includes 16 and 17 There you go. Yes. It. Um, uh, because people don't emerge like Venus from a shell <laughs> right. at, at 18, age of 18. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, Brian Mastansky uses that um, analogy a lot. He's a, he's a great scientist. Oh, so we so we redid the study and we, we basically found similar patterns. So younger people are coming out at earlier ages than older people. We sort of see that, you know, that, that, that replication. Mm-hmm. But I think the most amazing part is if you looked at like 18 to 24 year olds, um, in the 2006 study, and you looked at 18, 19 to 24 <laughs> year olds in the uh, more recent study, the age in which they're coming out ticked down by a whole year. Um, which wow. you know, when you're that young, like that, you know, that that's, matters. That, that is that is yeah. that 12 yeah. month period matters. I mean, like that's you know, from being a, a senior in high school to a junior in high school or a junior to a sophomore. Right. So uh, you know, I really it's still decreased. Yes, yeah. it's it's wow. still decreased even within that group. So I think it's it's really pushing to be much more developmentally on par with. Um, um, what happens with heterosexuals as well. And, you know, and even, and then that's, oh, and I'll also say this. So although like guys in their 50s, you know, might have had sex for the first time later, 
or come out later than someone who was younger. When we asked everyone, at what age did you maybe start to realize that you're, you know, that you were gay? Um, the, uh, everyone, it was did not significantly differ across the groups. Everyone said like ten or eleven years old. Wow, it was, you know, it's when it was happening. Mm. So you know, so for me then the delay in the, in those other milestones that's really culturally um, driven yeah. as opposed to you Some know developmental exactly. kind of biological exactly. whatever exactly. realization that it's might amazing have they can remember that far back if you when you ask your older <laughs> people that they can remember 10 11 that's that's crazy it's a, I mean it's a it's a pretty significant life event yeah. right um, you and remember like, that <laughs> you know especially when hormones are kicking in as yeah. well you know like just like uh, and I'm not going to ask you but like I could ask you like when was the first time that you you know kissed someone or yeah. had sex for the first time and you know yeah. who that you person was those, right. you know yeah. Yeah. Um, their first and last right. you know it was Janet Schmickenheimer <laughs> yeah. we were behind yeah. the, the bleachers yeah. you know it was a sunny day but that day. question is so loaded the realization question like if you asked me like when I realized I was straight or whatever I would not know that but I guess like you said it's such a landmark part of your life you do remember that it's, yeah. it's uh, that's amazing well for, for straight folks it's so in line with everything you've been told your whole life growing yeah. up you know the girlfriend oh do you have a girlfriend oh when you get married yeah. and all of those things so it's not as as major whereas for gay people very often yeah. it feels major because you have to define yourself in opposition to everything else wow. that you've been told up to that point I mean how old were you Do you did you have an age of your realization are you assuming that I'm gay Dejana <laughs> 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 uh, told me uh, <laughs> I've been outed I feel like Neil Patrick Harris oh uh, no um, you, know. Uh, you know I honestly I, I, for me I actually think it was like five or six wow yeah like that's when I realized like I am different you know from mm-hmm. other boys and, and I, I kept waiting for my heterosexuality to kick in oh, wow. um, as I was growing up and, and that's what I really grappled with and like you know I had a girlfriend in high school you know we were such you a cute couple and I just kept waiting for my heterosexuality to kick in and um, and it didn't and then that's and I you know finally you know said I was just like it's not kicking in that's awesome I, like, I might actually be gay I have to accept this yeah mm-hmm. and tell other people and that was the terrifying part yeah I was actually reflecting last night with uh, with my husband on on the story of coming out to my mom, and it like mm. it um uh, it came out in a fight. Whoa! Um, yeah, it came out in a fight. And which, how old were you when that happened? I was eighteen. So for twelve years or thirteen years, you were grappling with the decision or the realization to come out, right? Or- I mean, I you know I accepted the fact that I that I was not gonna like my heterosexuality is not kicking in at around 17. Okay. You know, I was just, I was just like, no, you, you are solidly <laughs> gay. This is gay. Um, and, it's not you know, even bi. Yeah, and and you're going to have to start it. saying the term out loud and, you know, and stop denying it if somebody asks you, because I, I don't read very straight. <laughs> As my husband says, when you mm. open your mouth, a purse falls out. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, I love that. You read very straight. That's awesome. A purse comes out <laughs> just so that we don't sound like we only pay attention to men uh, i know this <laughs> this 2017 study was only men do we have any new data whether from your lab or from other people's labs on on coming out milestones for women more recently than 10 I years hope ago so. i hope so <laughs> I hope so. I'll give you an excuse, but, um, but uh, you know, so I'm sorry. Um, you know, so much of my work is focused on HIV prevention. Mm. So just like the work that I'm doing naturally, it's just so focused on gay and bisexual men that I haven't kept my thumb on the literature on what's going on with um, with lesbian and bisexual women. Mm. women. I hope that, you know, um, if not me, someone is, yeah. you know, is collecting data on this. Do you think a similar thing has happened with 
you know, age of realization, maybe not having changed, but coming out. My hypothesis would be yeah. yes. And what I what I would what I'd be really curious to see is if that gap that we observed in our 2006 paper between men and women has closed. Mm. Um, Do you think it has? I hope so. Yeah. You know, as as well. But actually, you know, I don't necessarily hope so. Um, why why do women have to be like men? You know, <laughs> like you know, like maybe maybe it's not a bad thing. I you know, I'll just throw that out there too. So I I just be really curious if that gap that we observed mm. has closed, closed. and and mm. if so, what that means um, as well. Because I think that I also think that we live, especially in the Me Too movement, we we're very present in a society where women's sexuality and women's empowerment is really at the forefront mm. of everything. Thing mm-hmm. that we're doing, you know, so um, and you know, and consent, and you know, and and all like, like it's it's out there now. So um, if if we did a study today, and if we did a study in ten years, you know, what is what is going to be the impact of all of yeah. all of this? this? There might be a change within yeah. the last year if you really, if you did a study last year to today, there <laughs> yeah. could be a, a yeah. jump in that. Yeah. Um, we talk about coming out as as something that is good, that is necessary, that kind of everybody needs to go through. Is that always the case? Can you be a happy, healthy? gay person without having come out and is it sometimes a a, a negative thing i'm gonna i'm gonna answer your question unsatisfactorily <laughs> um, okay. and i and i will Hopefully. say that you know coming out can be dangerous for individuals it can be dangerous for really young people it can be dangerous if you're just living in the wrong country mm, you know where sure. gay people are being thrown from roofs so i i would say that sometimes not coming out um, is beneficial because the environment that someone's in is really toxic um, for them, you know. But you know, to maybe to answer your question though, I think you know you're really pointing out um, if somebody just stays in the closet until they're in their 30s, 40s, or 50s, um, that's really tough to lead a double mm. life. Um, and I'll go back to when we had "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Um, in the military. Mm. And my sister served in the military mm. for nearly two decades. And uh, and I'm her younger, you know, gay brother. And um, and she was very much, you know, she's like, in the workplace, people don't need to talk about their sexuality. Like, why do I need to hear about that in the workplace? <laughs> right. And I just explained to her, and I was like, do your coworkers know that you're married? She said, yes. I was like, do your coworkers know that you have three kids? kids she said, yeah. yes. I was like, do you wear a wedding ring mm-hmm. to work? She said, yes. And then I was like, do you have single friends at work? She's like, yes. I was like, you ever try to set them up with someone else? She's like, yes. And I was like, and I was, you know, sort of like, imagine how difficult it is to be a gay person and who not can't be able, not be able to do that. That, not, any of that not to do any of that mm. but then also like have your friends pressuring you into going on dates with people or trying to set you up or <laughs> right. you know um so that's really tough you know and we know that from the literature on our lgb military members so i think it's quite easy to extrapolate how difficult that must be for someone to not be out and um, be otherwise assumed to be heterosexual christian i, I always do this with dr john i always say please get, get into your time machine and fast forward 10 years <laughs> if you were to do this 10 years from now do you see that age lowering another year or so i don't no huh no there's um, gotta be an if uh, it's not a ceiling effect it's a what so a, a floor effect. floor effect yeah right. a floor <laughs> effect you know, one thing that we already observed is people sort of have that internal realization that they might be gay, and that was consistent across all age groups. I don't really see that taking down much further. You know, there is a point where if somebody starts having, you know, for de- de- sexual debut, which I think is such a funny <laughs> term, um, you know, if that ticks down, you know, much further, like that becomes dangerous for a person as well. So, for, you know, for us, we're seeing, you know, around 16, 17 okay. years old, sometimes 18 years old. And that's on par with when a lot of heterosexuals have their first sure. sexual experience. Mm. And we know from science um, that. That, you know, if, if heterosexual, you know, kids start having sex at 14, 13, 12, like that's that can put them on a very negative trajectory for their lives in terms of, I mean, you know, for 
heterosexuals like uh, teen pregnancy, for instance. But yeah, yeah. Um, and it's often correlated with other things like school delinquency yeah. and and depression and those kinds of things. So, so we, we may see. I, I I do think we're going to see a little bit of a floor effect, and okay. um, you know, it might tick down. You know, maybe one more year. You know, <laughs> but it would be nice to observe. You know, what's going on and and compare our eighteen year olds today to eighteen year olds ten years from now. Those people are eight. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that's at that point, right? So there are some developmental issues that happen, and you can't you can't change those too much as long as puberty happens at a certain age. And we've right. we've seen puberty happen earlier and earlier, but that has a floor effect as well. You sure. you know you're not going to have five year olds entering puberty <laughs> because uh, it's just yeah. like biologically not going to happen. And so a lot of these things are social effects of how much we allow kids to come out and how much information we provide for them to know what's going on with them and um, so yeah at some point it's going to level off I throw out right? there too you know here uh, one thing hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, you know I think we also need to gather data on LGB people's sexual experiences with someone of a different sex as well so like mm. have you had sex with you know a woman um, uh, how old were you when that happens and then looking at the timing and sequences of that as well like are people having a same sex experience and then having mm. you know and, 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 and I'm sorry and, and forgive me for all my bisexuals out there um, <laughs> because I realized that you you can have sex with both. But, but actually, <laughs> we also don't really have good data on the timing of sexual experiences for bisexual individuals going mm. both ways as well. So for the bisexual people in our study, and I'm really sorry, you didn't we ask. never asked them about sex with female partners. <gasps> oh, come on, Christian. <laughs> I, you know, well, I, in both studies, you didn't ask about... We did not ask about Other um, age experience? of debut, age yeah, age of debut for, and it's a, it's one question, you know, yeah. I mean, unless you split it up like kissing yeah. or sure. you know oral sex. I was going to ask you about the bisexual men in the study because I was wondering if you split up even further. You didn't like the data is just straight. You you clump the game uh, oh, yeah. the did game by together, right? Gay and by separately in terms of their milestones. Yeah, that's a great question. It came during the review process. I I will say I think that the um the findings with that were unremarkable. Like um, huh. it, it is, it, it's reported in the manuscript, yeah. but um, the findings themselves were um, were yeah. unremarkable. Okay, and 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 again, I'll emphasize like we only asked about sex with um, with, with a same sex partner. Sex. It actually might make sense that you know because like being gay is so still taboo. Yeah, you know that that you know would be time so that when gay gay sex happens versus when bi gay sex happens, <laughs> um, you know, might be the same. Right. Um, age. Okay. It's funny. That seems like one <laughs> sect of like we've talked about that we don't see a lot about the bi- bisexual people. You know, especially by men. Of, by men. Yeah. Mm. I wonder why. I guess maybe we have to catch up to it. We're <laughs> we're working through everyone else first or something. Maybe. Yeah. I, you could probably do a whole. Oh, yeah. segment on yeah. you know bis- bisexuality and I mean like the erasure of bi people from you know from data um, or just completely overlooking them or the denial that bisexuality even exists, exists that someone's you know just um, uh, what does Margaret Cho say am I gay am I bi am I straight she just says no I'm just really horny um, <laughs> uh, but I'll admit our fault as well like we too have not done a good uh, good service to further understanding this but I am making the commitment to our viewers at home <laughs> I will rectify this wrong <laughs> um, we're, we, Working we, on it. Yeah, we've got an ongoing cohort study right now, 
And um, after this podcast, I'm going to a meeting and we're going to get our final numbers. We're getting ready to close enrollment tomorrow. (gasps) And we also enrolled cisgender um, gay and bisexual men. We also enrolled um, gender non-binary individuals who were assigned male at birth. Mm -hmm. And we have transgender men and transgender women who have sex with men that are also in the study. Um, It's an HIV risk study. So Mm -hmm. the having sex with men thing was relevant. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, was the relevant piece to it, which is why we don't have lesbians um, in the study or cisgender women. Cisgender women have sex with men. They do as well, but the <laughs> HIV the, the yeah, HIV yeah. concentration among cisgender women is um, it's, you know, it's just yeah. it's, it's radically lower. different than it is for men who have sex with men. But we got lots of bi people in this study, so when <laughs> wow. we have you know a sample size of over eight thousand, you're making up for a Christian good. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 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 we will absolutely you know add some questions to a future assessment where we ask people about these developmental milestones, and I will make sure <laughs> yes. to ask them about you know age of debut for sex with um, right. Same sex and other sex, yeah, or even and, trans partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trans partners. Totally. Absolutely, that never come. Like, I'd never see that. Um, but yeah, that that's an interesting one because I think back in the day, the understanding was that most gay people will have tried at least to have sex with an other sex partner because they were trying to maybe prove themselves that they're not gay or they're just kind of following whatever norms were uh, laid out for them. But now that it's becoming more acceptable and more more and more kids are coming out in relatively kind of gay positive or gay affirmative kind of environments, they don't feel the need to do that. So I wonder how much that has changed. Now, now I'm anecdotally, you know, I've, I've, I meet gay guy friends who are like, I've never had sex with a woman. I'm sort of curious. Just, <laughs> like, What's it like down there? Yeah, I'm like, just, just wondering. You know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty gay, but I'm wondering because I never kind of had that experience. Yeah, there's a lot in, written in, in the blogosphere around the narrative that we create around quote-unquote gold star gays mm. um, or gold star lesbians, people that Plat- have, you know. Wait, so platinum or gold star? What's the difference? I, I You know, I haven't heard you- platinum or <laughs> really? gold star. But I will oh, challenge okay. the narrative, you know, like okay. um, it, that, 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 you know, we shouldn't be using. To tell people what yeah, it what's is. Yeah, it's a gold star. Oh, it's, <laughs> they're not in the military, are they? <laughs> um, yeah, like, like no. they're pure. Like they've never had sex with a woman. Um, oh. So, you know, they are they are a gold star. You know, they, they win a gold star for it or something. So, so I'm not going to be able to quote anything that I've read recently, but I do know that a lot of people have problem with the term um, or just the narrative that we create around you're less than if you've had sex with a woman Mm -hmm. and you know what that does to you know gay people that have had sex with women but also what it does to bisexuals as well so like you know bringing back the narrative around you know um, uh, biphobia I had a a friend a cisgender woman who who's a lesbian who identified as as a platinum lesbian whatever gold star I'm, I'm not exactly yeah. sure what the difference is I think there are even within that narrative of pureness right yeah. there are levels of how pure you are and so she would not even kiss a male friend on the lips because that would ruin her platinum status like a, huh. a friend not in a romantic or sexual way but yeah that as was, a boring that was straight guy why do you guys far. do that I don't get that what the, well when we talk about it like this now you know you know like um, when you dissect it in a, in a setting like this I think it becomes really easy to see why you know why you know why are we doing that like, yeah. you, know, you know problematizing it but um but the narrative's out there and hmm. and 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 i would say the damage that it does is it mm. says that someone who's kissed someone right. yeah. you know is uh, less a, than yeah yeah wow so well, let's not, not do as that. gay yeah as, yeah. As yeah you're not as gay can be yeah which yeah is a little <clears throat> silly yeah i think one of the criteria that uh this is from a gay male friend was that his delivery was was a c-section so he's never 
had direct contact <laughs> with the vagina, <laughs> and that made him even so diamond. Yeah, diamond. diamond yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's double diamond, there's triple diamond. It's like a ski slope. Yeah, it's actually starting to sound like um, we're boarding a plane now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the platinum elite, gold yeah. star members. Can now board. <laughs> I'm glad you, you you brought that up because it is a. a problematic narrative what as interesting is, as it is you know right. it's um it's important to point out the sort of um the latent effect that that saying something like that mm. you know the sort of trickle effect of it you know can have so i mean ingestic is innocent but i guess if you're t- you're you're putting yourself in tears i think there's nothing good can come of that yeah yeah and if and if that is limiting either what you want to experience or can experience or if it's affecting other people in terms of what they feel comfortable exploring because just like we, we talked on the on the podcast about the mostly straight people you know the, all these people who are predominantly heterosexual and and don't have su- like super strong attractions that they might be suppressing but they're now feeling comfortable exploring a little bit with same-sex partners and you, you might have the same thing on the other side obviously right gay people who are predominantly gay but like my friends, like I'm kind of curious, you know, what that one might be like. And if you're putting these these tiers of what is proper gay or pure gay, then people are not going to feel comfortable exploring, or you're not going to feel comfortable exploring. And I think that that is the um, that is most strongly felt for straight men. That like mm. you know like if a straight guy ever has sex with another guy, oh, like yeah. that's it. Like yeah. all that, like you know like uh, like He's it'll, gay, it'll, 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 but it'll yeah. happen among women as well. Like you know he had sex with a dude, right? <laughs> Like, are you mm-hmm. sure you want to go down this road? Like, you know, whereas if, yeah, he's going to leave you for for a guy at one point. Yeah. That's it. Sexuality is a lot more more fluid and flexible and mm-hmm. not force people into these very, very strict categories. Tell us about the new study. Okay. I'm so, super excited about that because it's massive and big goals and scope. So tell us about it. So the new study that we have, it's called Together 5000. Uh, it was funded by the National Institutes for Health. Thank you, NIH, um, <laughs> for the money. And um, and it's an observational cohort study. And our major goal is to understand HIV prevention. And, you know, and sort of, and to, to put it lightly, we have tools to help people stay negative. You know, we have condoms, we have pre-exposure prophylaxis, we have PrEP, and, uh, you know, we have systems in place, but yet still every year, thousands of people fall through our safety net. Mm. Um, So uh, we're doing this observational cohort study. And Um, what does that mean, cohort study? A cohort is a group of individuals that have something in common um, that you're going to follow over time, as opposed to a a repeated cross-sectional study where you would just survey a thousand people and then come back a year later and survey a different thousand people okay we're gonna follow these eight thousand guys um, for up to four years Whoa. and in the study they do online surveys at home they also uh, we mail them an at-home HIV testing kit they sample themselves that goes to a lab for analysis and then we report the results to the participants and eight thousand men um, yes wow. well, and trans women and, and, yeah, and there aren't many. And, you know, we did we, we marketed the study as we never said you would be excluded. But, you know, we we did pitch the study in gay places, if okay. you will. We advertised on, you know, the apps that people are using to hook up. And that's where we got our participants. And so we did enroll some trans individuals, but the study wasn't targeted for them. Okay, but I just I was like, look, we have a fantastic opportunity to collect data on trans men and trans women who have sex with men. Let's why exclude them, mm-hmm. you know, include them in the study. And let's see what we can learn about them, even if the sample size is 
a small. Little bit small. Right. So we're just about to close enrollment. You know, on this. You have got your eight thousand people. Um, we we were only aiming for five thousand. Okay. Um, but we have a little bit of a uh, enrollment cascade. Like not everybody's doing everything in the study um, because we're very hands off with them as well. We don't meet any of these guys. We interact with them entirely, Online. you know, digitally, mm. and we, you know, with with texting them and through wow. email. Right. And that's also the point of the observational cohort. And how often is that with cohort study? So um, we enroll them at their baseline assessment and we're going to do that HIV testing with them and a big survey with them again a year from now. Um, And but we are doing intermediary check ins with the participants over time just to make sure if their contact information has changed or if they've moved or anything like that. So and and they have to be all HIV negative at the beginning of the study. Yeah. uh, uh, To see whether is the goal to see whether and how many of them become HIV positive and what are the factors that are associated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, uh, we uh, we are testing them at baseline as well. And we have identified a lot of people um, who are HIV positive. And we also market the study as an opportunity for HIV testing. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, if someone tells us, you know, um, on their initial survey, hey, I'm positive, then we would say like, okay, well, this study is not for you. So right. um, those people are, you know, screened initially. So these are people that either tell us that they're negative or they tell us they don't know their status. We mail them that at-home HIV test kit. Uh, I, I don't have the exact number, but I know that over 120, you know, have come up positive with us and we've reported those results mm. to them. And um, among these guys, um, about 44% of them, they've had an HIV test in the past year. So wow. this is a recent you know, diagnosis for mm. them. And I, I, I just say like the good news of this is like somebody's learning their status and they're learning it through a study. We're going to continue to follow these participants over time, the ones that we identified at baseline, mm-hmm. though technically we're really focused on the negative participants going forward in the study. And I'll just also put this out there too. We have something like 1,800 of our participants are between the ages of 16 and 24. Mm-hmm. So we have a That's massive a cohort of really young um, individuals as well, um, which if you look at a lot of studies, the average age tends to be like 40, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, for, um, uh, I actually did a study, I, I won't name the website, but we, you know, we were recruited off of a hookup website a couple of years ago and the average age was 49. Wow. Um, and I think, <laughs> but I also think that's emblematic of the fact that people don't use static hookup websites, websites. anymore to meet sex it's partners. All it's all app based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the key things that you're looking at in this study? So one thing that I'm really excited that we're looking at, we have participants from all 50 states and from Puerto Rico. We're going to look at the contextual factors of where people live. So like if you, you know, we we know for other health reasons, like it, if living in certain states is more dangerous for obesity, it is more dangerous mm. for diabetes, totally. it is more dangerous for poverty, right? So why not for HIV as well, right? So we're looking at where people live and and the um, uh, structural factors under which they live. Like, do you live in a state that's considered very homophobic? Mm-hmm. Um, or do you live in a state that's considered very pro-gay as well as, as like a, as a state-level, you know, contextualizing factor? So it's not just what did you put where and when, mm-hmm. but, you know, where's your nearest LGBT community center? Uh, right. You know, like where's the, you know, what is the prevalence of HIV in the community that you live? You know, sure. so um, we're looking at, you know, we're also looking at psychosocial factors. We're looking at behavioral factors. But I'm super excited that we're taking it a step back and looking at contextualizing and structural factors. Do you live in a state that has Affordable Care Act Medicaid expansion, um, mm-hmm. for instance? Right. You know, because that's a uh, way to get access 
to healthcare, and access to healthcare means getting testing. It means getting access to prep. You know, for instance. So are these guys on prep or um, at enrollment? They are not. So okay. um, uh, somebody that goes on prep, you know, uh, has very very little risk of contracting HIV, and we're in you know a study focused on on HIV. What we are doing though is we know that participants are going to go on prep moving forward Some in are, the study. Right. They are, mm-hmm. and in fact, we asked them if they had been on prep before, and when our numbers were a little lower, so I'm going to say 900, but that's when we had fewer participants in the study. We had something like 900 participants say, yeah, I've been on PrEP that aren't on PrEP anymore. And we asked them, why aren't you on PrEP anymore? And do you guys want to guess the reason why they're not on PrEP anymore? Or should I? No, I'd love to find out why. It's insurance reasons. Money. You know, so people yeah. change jobs, they, you know, or um, their insurance changes or whatever, and they lose access medical to access to PrEP. Wow. So, you know, we Is think- Is that the major reason? That is the, like the number one wow. reason where somebody it tells us. It wasn't compliance. It wasn't like it was too hard to it comes take up. it every day or something. It comes up. People do say I had side effects from it. Mm. People also say like, I no longer feel like I need PrEP anymore. Like I've, I'm, I'm entering. Right, if you're behavior. monogamous, sure, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Like PrEP is also not a lifetime commitment as well. Just like with the pill mm-hmm. for, right. you know, for contraception. <laughs> yeah. Like you, once you start taking it, you don't have to take it forever. But I, I will say the number one and, and number one by far reason that people were telling us that they, you know, are no longer on PrEP is because of insurance and job issues what's the price point on that just <laughs> out of curiosity so um oh i don't know how much i'm, I'm sure we've mentioned prep on the podcast yeah, but i'm not sure it. how yeah. much we've talked about it so just briefly for for listeners who might not quite know sure, what this is sure. tell us what it is and then how much it costs so prep is an acronym that stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis which is also just a really big mouthful of words <laughs> um it's basically taking something for prevention and um, prep was approved by the fda um, in 2012 in the form of a once daily pill and it's a pill that was originally being used to treat people that have hiv but it turns out that if you take the pill prior to an exposure it can stop you from contracting hiv which is unbelievable it's almost like a, it's almost it's, like a vaccine it's yeah. almost like a vaccine Wow. Just um, one that you have to take every, every day. day. Yeah. yeah. So there's been a slow uptake of PrEP among um, the people that would benefit from it most. Some people feel like just, I think everything, if you replace PrEP with contraceptives, you know, it's like the same thing's been said, like, oh, it's going to encourage promiscuity. <laughs> people that are taking it, you know, they're obviously sluts. Right. You know, I'm not <laughs> slutty enough for that. For that, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, so there's that whole narrative that we're battling as well. Whereas I feel, I'm sorry, if this was 1985 and someone <laughs> burst into GMHC, the gay men's health crisis um, and said we have a fix for this AIDS crisis if people just take this pill oh yeah like just, you know it would have been a complete different narrative but here that's we are so true you know, yeah it's a here good we are, point PrEP's been out now for six years and we still have people um, you know that uh, that PrEP is going to cause an increase in STIs because people aren't going to use condoms you know or PrEP is going to decrease condom use or you know mm. whatever it may be sorry so that's PrEP <laughs> yeah. in a nutshell <laughs> that was good <laughs> I like that. That was good. And some of the issues around, yeah. you know, some of the barriers, I guess, the social and, and psychological it, barriers. And you have to take it every day. So you that uh, obviously day. has to get expensive. So, um, oh, yeah. The original question was, yeah. what yeah. is the price of PrEP? <laughs> yeah. So um, it's still in the U.S. It's still under its brand name. Um, and uh, There's no generic There's version. no generic available yeah. in the U.S. Okay. And it's about $1,400 a month. Um, and <laughs> what? That's a, Let's say that again. Yeah. $1,400 a month. That's without insurance. So, and here's what happens to people that have insurance that are trying to get on PrEP. Like, let's, so it's a premium drug. And um, like, I, I think even like my, like if it's a premium, premium drug, your copay is 20%, you know, or do, let's just like, oh, you mm-hmm. know, depending right. on what kind of insurance mm-hmm. plan you have, or but whatever, still, yeah. you know, 20% mm-hmm. of $1,400 <laughs> is 300 and something dollars yeah, so you say a thousand bucks a month. Yeah, yeah. A month. We keep saying that you have to take PrEP every day. That is currently how it's approved by the FDA. They're also investigating mm-hmm. other doses 
dosing methods for oh. PrEP because it turns out it actually sticks around in your system for quite a while. So it might be that all other dosing strategies, um, such are just as, as effective, yeah, are, are yeah, they're they're still investigating them, but it mm -hmm. looks you know the preliminary data suggests that that it that it or rather we also know if you miss the occasional dose, you know your uh, risk of contracting HIV does not you know skyrocket instantly. Whereas like with the pill, if a woman misses the yeah. pill, she can get pregnant. <laughs> right. Um, whereas you know whereas miss you know if you miss it like uh, sorry some of the data that we have basically say if you're taking about four doses per week, you've got pretty good um, mm -hmm. coverage from it. Now I'm not telling our users at home <laughs> yeah. you know go ahead to and take that, it only right? four days a week or totally. take it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, <laughs> and you're set for the rest of the week or whatever. I'm just saying that you know prep is forgiving of the occasional missed dose, and we're mm -hmm. currently investigating other dosing strategies. But let's what talk is, about what are some of the do other dosing strategies um, that uh, um, So one strategy that's being investigated is two to 24 hours before you're going to have sex. You take two um, you take two pills. Um, then the following day, take a pill. Day after that, you take a pill. So you're taking a total of four pills, but you're getting you know two of them in your system a minimum of two hours before you're going to have sex. Mm. Sorry, we'll get off topic for this for a little while. So yeah, now no, that now good. that intermittent dosing strategies are being investigated, my colleagues and I, and they really led this up. I was just part of the team that did it. We're investigating. Well, how well can people predict if they're going to have sex? Have sex yeah. yeah. So we were doing what's <laughs> that called requires a, some planning. It, yeah. we, it does. Well, actually, <laughs> let me explain to you because okay. uh, what we found. So we were already doing a diary study where we were asking people every day to tell us whether they had sex or not. And, you know, did you do drugs? And, you know, where'd you put it? When? How was it? You know, all of that. And they were, so they're getting an email from us every day asking them to tell us about the sex they had that day. And um, then we added a question. We said, you know, do you think you're going to have sex tomorrow? And then what we could do is we have the data from the next day is look at how, how well their predictions when somebody are. says yeah. today, you, know, you think you're going to have sex tomorrow if they actually had sex tomorrow. And this is a study of gay and bisexual men. Okay. And all I will say is that... Is it published yet? It is published. Okay, tell us. Give how us accurate. I, yeah, yeah we, can, we can get you the... Um, it is published. It's, it's a tough read, though, because it's mathematically very complex. Sure. So I'll sum it up for you. Gay and bisexual men think they're going to get laid all the time. Um, <laughs> if you ask them, <laughs> do you think you're going to have sex tomorrow? Everyone's like, yes, absolutely. What, like 90 plus percent right. says it's, yes? I, I, I couldn't get or you the something? exact number. Okay. You know, yeah. and it's also like on average or whatever. Wow. But I say that we're really bad at being accurate at that as well. So we're very optimistic <laughs> about whether we're going to have sex. That's good. So we, we th and, and what that would mean then is that you're taking a pill, but you didn't actually need it. But that's okay. not that's not the end of the world. That means you were prepared for something. Sure. Um, but then we, we also asked them, like, so when people said that they weren't going to have sex, so do you think you're going to have sex tomorrow? Absolutely not. We're really, really accurate at that. When you really? know that, yeah, when, when like we, we think we're going to get laid, but when we say we're not <laughs> going to, it's true. And here's what I think is happening. People are going to visit their mothers. <laughs> like, you know, like, they got, like, there's something coming up. Like, yep, tomorrow I'm getting on that flight and I'm spending the weekend right. with my parents. Oh, I know. Like, awesome. I mean, or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. some life event yeah. that's there's going on. There's something that's going to yeah. happen that I just absolutely know there is no way I'm getting any tomorrow. Like, my niece is communion. I'm not getting laid tomorrow. Yeah. It's not happening. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Amazing. Exactly. Which is, yeah. I think is also or good I'm news sick for sick or I'm something. You know, I'm too busy. I'm not going out. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm going to be out. I've got my finals tomorrow, whatever right. it may be. Like, people just know, like, I am not getting laid tomorrow. And they're pretty, when they say that, but that also means then if you think that you're not going to get laid tomorrow, then skip that prep dose, right? right? And, um, and skipping that prep dose isn't going to hurt you. 
because you were actually pretty exactly. accurate at knowing that you didn't need the prep dose. Mm. So that's you know sort of the finding from that study. That's intermittent prep. <laughs> Let's talk about insurance. Cost yeah. and insurance, yes. <laughs> so prep is super duper expensive. Um, it's not available in a generic form. Most insurances will cover prep, but there's still that issue you have to deal with around copayments. So the manufacturer of prep has uh, issued a, a copayment coupon card oh, to individuals that they will cover, I believe the dollar amount now is $4,800 a year in copayments. It's copayment assistance. That helps. So, yeah. um, so for many people... And is that available to everybody who needs PrEP or and who has insurance? or how? how you have to work? have insurance in order to get it. So if you're uninsured, I don't know if it's... I, I could be wrong, um, but it's really designed to cover insurance co-payments mm. you know so people do fall mm. through cracks in other ways as well and there are other programs out there to help people um, pay for their meds and a lot of this came about um, it's, it, it mirrors um, what's been done to help positive people pay for their meds as well so that's sort of the model that they're using and some of the programs that are existing have been extended to cover mm. um, pre-exposure when is there um, going to be generic available for this <laughs> so it already exists outside of, oh, um, of the approved. US and I don't know about the laws about like how because yeah. it baffles me as well because it's much um, cheaper in Europe. It could be all of Europe. It could just be Germany. I, you know, the, <laughs> the, I forget. It's 50 euros a month. Um, wow. uh, I, in I think, Germany, it's 50 euros a month. I believe in Germany, it's 50. I think in Norway, Amazing. it's completely free. I believe in France, it could be completely free as right? well. So, wow. but you know, and, and um, they basically, you know, have come to an agreement for, you know, how to do it. I'd uh, be fascinated to know these countries that have like the, the, the cheap prep or the free prep like the hiv rates must that must have have huge effect on them right uh, what's going on in london right now is incredible so um london was an early you know sort of like let's get people let's get really pro let's get let's get ahead of this pro prep and mm -hmm. um and their hiv prep. rates have dropped dramatically wow. you know as a result and really? i can't give you the exact numbers yeah, no. but they're putting it's common out, sense right yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but like it's having a measurable impact and then, then there's also you know the like prep is going to cause you know people are going to stop using condoms so there's going to be like just an outrageous amount of sexually transmitted infections of everything else gonorrhea yeah. chlamydia yeah, sure. syphilis and um you know first of all don't equate hiv with gonorrhea right like <laughs> like prep is still doing something very very mm -hmm. good um you know yeah, gonorrhea you get a shot or a couple yeah. pills you know chlamydia whatever and it's treatable. that's it mm -hmm. it's treatable it's but here's the other amazing thing that's happening. The commissioner for HIV in New York, Dimitri Daskalakis, he basically says PrEP is a gateway drug. Oh, it's a gateway drug into the healthcare system. What? It's a gateway drug into the healthcare system. So if you're going to go on PrEP, you have to get tested for HIV. You still have to get tested for HIV. Okay. Um, you st and, and when you get tested for HIV, they're also going to test you for STIs, and they have to do this quarterly. So people that were showing up at a clinic to get you know tested for an STI when something was wrong, maybe once a year, or maybe when they were going for their annual physical, are now forced to go to their doctor quarterly if, to get sexual yeah. health checkups. So, um, so, so it's a good gateway it's drug. It's a good gateway okay. drug. It's a gateway <laughs> drug. It scared me. It's a, it's, yes. It's a gateway I know, the drug. way you, you said it, I was like, what, <laughs> is it a bad <laughs> thing? But no, no, no. It's a what, good gateway drug. Cocaine then or <laughs> no, exactly. But that, that's, that, that's the best part. Like we're finally using it as, uh, it's a good gateway. Yes. yes. That's it's awesome. It's a gateway drug to engage people into a healthcare system that they may not have otherwise been engaged right. with. Right. And especially if these are high risk 
kind of people who might Which be putting themselves. Which is not a term that I would use. Mm-hmm. I would just, I no. Would, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would never refer. So let's, let's not refer to people as okay. high risk. Let's just say people that would benefit most from the protection that PrEP affords them. Can I ask why like you don't that. like using the high risk? I think it's, it's a negative label. It's a stigmatizing yeah. label to refer to a person as high risk. Because, and so in some of the other studies that we've done, we had like really terrible enrollment rates for them. And so we had participants in the study and we were like, look, these are the cards that we're passing out on the street. You know, what do you think about this image? Is this, is this guy a sexy guy? What do you think about our headlines like you know and these are participants that are in the study and I, and one that resonated with me so well was he looked at it and he's like well that is not me like i'm like this this implies like super duper risky people you know and blah 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 mm. blah and this participant had never seen our recruitment card he'd gotten like roped into the study another <laughs> way like maybe it was a friend referral or whatever right. and then when he saw our recruitment materials he's like this, this is i would I, not have responded to this I would have never no because mm. people don't consider themselves risky um as well which is also a problem with people going on prep as well is is um and and uh, we were asking this in almost all of our surveys including our cohort study we ask people all of the questions that the Centers for Disease Control, you know, sort of uses to determine should is somebody a good candidate for prep. Mm. Um, so we, we ask them uh, these questions. Then we ask them, do you think that you're a good candidate for prep? And there's a misidentification: is that people don't realize that they'd Their be eligible for prep, and is, it's a really yeah. low threshold. If you've basically had sex and you're a gay or bisexual, if you if you're a man who's had sex with a man, um, you know, chances are you should be considering, you know, going on prep. It's it's that low. What are what are the criteria or what are the thresholds? I would not. I would. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah. and and I'll just say like the CDC has issued guidance. They don't they don't call it criteria. Sure. <laughs> um, and and there's two separate forms of guidance. You know, and one is like if you've had an STI in the past year. You should consider going on prep, okay. um, uh, uh, but then they also like start taking to, into account like if you're a person of color, mm-hmm. you know, because the, there's such a huge disparity in HIV among men of color that that might actually be something to help you know nudge you along. If you're a younger person, mm-hmm. that might be something to consider. So if you've and actually one of the criteria is like if you've used crystal meth, um, mm-hmm. like and I think it's in the, either the last three or last six months, even if you're not having sex without a condom, <laughs> the sheer fact that you're using crystal is um, you know an indicator that you might want to consider using. Using prep because mm. you might be on a path where sex without a condom does starts it's to happen, happen because the two are just really strongly associated with one another. Mm. So I think that's really forward thinking as well. It's, it's not even yeah. based on sexual behavior; Smart. it's other factors, you know, to consider it. Well, I'm looking forward to the cohort study happening and you following up those guys. What when do you think the first stuff is going to come out and get published from that? <laughs> I mean, I know. No, so I'll say like, we're closing enrollment tomorrow. Right. So um, once enrollment's closed, we'll have our baseline data set. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, t- so like we'll have data available mm-hmm. immediately. But as you know, the publication process yeah, takes a really so. long time. What I will say is, you know, in two weeks, I'm actually going to a conference and I'm going to be presenting um, the data that we have thus far, but it's in conference format. So it's not mm. peer reviewed at this point. Peer reviewed publications will be coming out, you know, in the coming months. Um, from and the baseline from data, the baseline data. And, and as um, you collect more. And I'll also just say one more thing, you know, like so that I, so I am knocking on wood with this. This is a this is a really interesting mechanism that the NIH funded for us where we have to achieve a certain set of milestones um, to basically demonstrate that we can pull off this cohort stuff. They've given us two mm-hmm. years of funding. Okay. What, for year one is to enroll the cohort and then year two is to follow up with that cohort a year later. Okay. And at the end of year two, which will be the, um, you know, um, June of next year, they're going to ask us, you know, basically for a report 
report on where things are. And if we achieve everything that we'd set out to do, then they're going to say, here's more funding to follow these guys for up to four years. So this has been an incredibly stressful year in my my life because I've never had, you know, (laughs) such a tight timeline to do something this big. But um, I'm happy to. But you reached it. You um, reach your your so milestone far. for the first year. We we we've met many of our milestones. Okay. So like we've met we you know in terms of how many people we need in the study, we've met that. How many young people? Um, we we've met that. How many people of color? You know, we've met that. Mm. Um, you know, what we're looking at now that the NIH wants to know is like, um, are you reaching people who are um, genuinely at risk for HIV? So um, that's what we'll be monitoring over the course of the next year. Cool. That's awesome. I'm excited to hear more <laughs> yeah. in the following months. Dr. Christian Grove, thank you so much for being on the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. I, can I yeah. turn gay after this? This was great. Is this- you, which milestones have you gone through? <laughs> Thank you, Christian. You bet. All right. Well, that wraps up episode number 35. If you enjoyed this podcast or all of our other 34 podcasts, mm-hmm. please let us know what you thought. If you uh, listen to us via iTunes, Click on the rate and review thing. Give us all the stars. You know, I mean, unless <laughs> you don't want to. But just give us all the, the stars. More, the merrier. Yeah, leave a comment. Let us know what you think. and uh, we'll Or share be... it with a friend. Yes, tell a friend. I listen to podcasts all the time, and I share them with people I think would enjoy the podcast that I listen to. Yeah, you listen to all the podcasts with this one. Because <laughs> I've been there <laughs> for there. this one. Okay. I have been present while it was being recorded, if oh. you don't remember. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, you will be present for next week's episode, correct? I will be. That's the plan, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and who do we have joining us? We have Dr. Patrick Jern, who's going to talk to us about his new study on hormonal birth control and how it might be affecting relationships. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So like the pill and stuff? The pill and stuff, yeah. Oh, all right, cool. All right, well, and other forms of hormonal birth control. Okay. Well, I, I, I don't know if you've heard this, but since the you know 70s, there have been other forms of administering hormones to bodies. Okay. That's uh, not a pill. I almost felt like that was a jab towards me. Kind of no, a little no, bit, a little no. bit, a little I, bit. I don't know why. A little bit, a little bit of a jab. Okay, well, I, I will be present next week, Doctor Jana. <laughs> okay, you might learn a thing or two. <laughs> All right, see ya. <laughs> Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with Doctor Jana and Joe, follow them on Science of Sex Podcast or on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast. This has been the Science of Sex. 